Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on December 6, 2015, on the basis of Mark 1, verses 1 through 8. There is a reason why when people see something like that, all kinds of them, even some non-Christians, will come flocking. And there is also a reason why when people see something like that, all kinds of them, including some Christians, will sort of turn and look and walk the other way. And actually, the reason is sort of the same in both, both cases. You probably know that Christmas Eve is, is one of those days out of the year when all kinds of people who don't normally go to church will, in spite of that, consider doing so. And I think one of the reasons for that is because at Christmas, we're celebrating the birth of a baby. Everyone loves a baby, right? A baby is cute, a baby is cuddly, a baby is not at all threatening, not at all intimidating. But that guy, that guy is anything but. Have you seen something like that before? usually happens sort of out in a public place, maybe in a place where you're not expecting to see something like that. There's usually a person involved who sort of has a unique appearance, maybe even unique clothing that they're wearing. And whether they are holding a big sign like that or, or a megaphone that they're shouting through, whatever the message might be, it almost always contains that, that one important word at the top, that word, repent. Does that sound about right? Well, would you believe me if I told you that of those two, Jesus arranged things in such a way that for just about everyone, their first impression, their first experience of Jesus was more like the one on the right and less like the one on the left. You see, we might assume that if we're going to experience Jesus, if we're going to study the story of Jesus' life, we'd start at the very beginning. We'd start with his birth. And sure enough, three out of the four Gospels, those books of the Bible that tell the story of Jesus' life, three out of four do that very thing. Not the one in front of us today. Not Mark. You heard in those verses how right at the very beginning of his book, Mark tells us that he is going to tell us the good news about Jesus right from the very beginning. Only he doesn't start with Jesus' birth. And by doing so, Mark actually gives us sort of a cool opportunity. He gives us the chance to experience Jesus the way that just about everyone in Jesus' day would have. You see, very few people were there at his birth. Very few people knew him as a kid. It wasn't until Jesus was a full-grown man. It wasn't until he was ready to go out and begin his ministry of preaching and teaching and healing that people got their first experience with him. And it wasn't even through Jesus himself. There was this man named John the Baptist. He went out into a very public place, sort of a place where you you wouldn't expect to find him. He had a very unique appearance, very unique clothing. And if you could sum up John's message with just one word, it would be that, Big word at the top of that sign, the word repent. 
So here's what I want you to think about today. How would you react? How should you react? If this is your first impression of Jesus. There's a picture, by the way, of of the way the movie that we looked at on Wednesday night portrays John. As I said, unique appearance, unique dress. This is how people experienced Jesus for the first time as John called out to them, repent. Let's talk a little bit about that word repent. The word repent in the Greek language that was written and used in Jesus' day is actually a combination of two words that when they are put together mean to change your mind. In fact, that first word, the one that is translated change, was the Greek word meta. As in when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, we call it metamorphosis. Right, so meta means change. But it's interesting that in other cases, in other contexts, that same word meta can also be used to mean after. And it's actually quite instructive that that same word meta can mean both change and after. Because in most situations, in most circumstances, when do you end up changing your mind about something? It's only after you've been able to see that the way you were thinking or the way that you were acting was not correct. In fact, John sort of compares this whole repentance thing to a trip that someone would be taking, a trip where you have multiple routes that you can pick from. Now, both of those routes might end up getting you to your destination, but one of the roads is very bumpy and very windy, the other road very smooth, very straight. One of those roads is full of construction, potholes, traffic jams. The other road is a smooth sailing four-lane highway. And if you've ever been in that experience before, especially if you're in unfamiliar territory, you know that the frustrating thing is that when you are setting out on that trip, you have no idea which road is which. You have no idea which road is the better one to take. You simply have to pick one. And it's only after the fact that you can look back and decide whether or not you made the right choice, right? It's only after the fact that you would possibly change your mind. In fact, that's sort of how life works, isn't it? What do we say all the time? We say, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Just make sure that you learn from those mistakes, right? But if we apply that sort of thinking to our relationship with God, we we sort of run into a big problem. You see, a life spent learning from our mistakes is built on one simple assumption, one simple premise. The premise that we will actually have time to learn from those mistakes, that we will have the opportunity to get off the wrong path that we are on and get on the right one. Well, when it comes to our relationship with God, we know that that will not always be the case. You heard Peter tell us in the second lesson how the Lord Jesus will come back like a thief, unexpectedly. And when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, the last thing that we would ever want is to be on the wrong path because then the opportunity to change our mind, the, uh, the opportunity to get on the right path will be gone. So it's interesting that John uses that word for repent a word that means to change your mind after the fact. He makes use of that word, but he gives it a very important 
twist. When John says repent, he still means change your mind. But he means change your mind before rather than after. His call to repentance is God's invitation to change our mind, not in reaction to Jesus' return when it's already too late, but in preparation for Jesus' return while we still have time. You see, God's invitation to repent is his invitation to simply take the word of God, use it to examine the paths that we are on, and decide whether they are right or wrong. I figured we better practice that a little bit this morning. And I figured that out of all the areas of our life that we might examine, we would focus on the one specifically that John himself calls to our attention. You see, there was a reason why John decided to set up shop way out in the desert, off the beaten path down by the Jordan River. And there was a reason why he chose to wear only camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. There was a reason why he lived off the land, eating nothing but locusts and wild honey. He was visually communicating to the people of that day that material possessions are not the be-all and end-all of our existence. In fact, if people wanted to go out and listen to John, what did they have to do? They had to leave the city. They had to leave behind their homes and their jobs and their money and their stuff. They had to get away from all of those distractions so that they could go out and hear the word of God. So how does that compare to the path that we're on? Last Sunday, we went out and we cut down our family Christmas tree. We put it up that afternoon and began to decorate it. And as I could have almost predicted, once again, the same thing that happens year after year, my utter disdain for Christmas tree lights was rekindled. (laughs) Of course, I've learned over the years that when you're putting up your Christmas tree lights, you, of course, want to check to make sure every strand works before you would think of putting them on the tree. And I've learned that if any of those strands isn't working, just throw it away. It is not worth the time and the effort for the $1.35 that it takes to replace it, right? So sure enough, I checked each and every one. They all worked. I put them on the tree. I plugged it in. And sure enough, half of a strand didn't light up. So I walk over to it, and I start fidgeting with each bulb one by one. And I quickly find out that if I put my fingers on just one of those bulbs and sort of move it half an inch, all of a sudden, it lights up. Take my hand off, the lights go off. Put my hand on, the lights are on. On, off, on, off, on, off. What could I do? I stood there day and night until finally I had to come to church this morning. Of course, I didn't actually do that, but here's my point. Friends, as fickle, as unreliable, as uncertain as those chintzy Christmas tree lights are, the same is no less true of our material possessions, our money, our stuff, our jobs, our homes, our bank accounts. If we are spending limitless time piling up those kinds of riches and finding no time to even think about heavenly riches, if we are so busy carrying out the day-to-day activities of our lives that we can't 
get away, even for a moment, from all of those distractions to hear the word of God. If we are busy hoarding and hoarding that kind of wealth for ourselves and can't unclench our fists long enough to help someone who is in need or to support the spread of the gospel, we are on the wrong path. But friends, here's the good news. God is not like some backseat driver who just sits there, watches what we do, and then says, nope, wrong move. Nope, you should have done that. Nope, I would have done this. Nope, bad choice. No, he actually pleads with us to repent ahead of time, before we plummet down that wrong path. His call to repentance enables us to learn those all-important lessons without having to learn them the hard way. His call to repentance enables us to see whether we are on that wrong path, not after the fact, not after it's too late, but beforehand, right from the very start. So one example of a wrong path that we might be on sort of leads to the question about the right one, doesn't it? Here's another area where we need our minds to be changed by the Word of God. You see, if the wrong path is one of greed and selfishness and materialism, it stands to reason that maybe the right path is one of contentment, generosity, and giving. It stands to reason that maybe the right path is the one that we take to make up for all the times that we've stepped on the wrong path. Again, here's where our minds need to be changed. By John's call to repentance. Notice what John says. He says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. In other, words, in other words, the one who travels the right path is not even you or me at all. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who travels that right path for us. In fact, it's sort of interesting that as John stood there on the banks of the Jordan River, he was not able to point people to what exactly that path would look like because it hadn't happened yet. Jesus hadn't even begun to do his three years of public ministry. But John did want to let people know what the end of that path would look like. It was almost like he told them, here's the sign that you're going to see when Jesus reaches the end of that path. Here's the proof that will tell you that everything that Jesus needed to do has been completed. And so here's what he said. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, a few years later, Jesus himself would say almost those exact words about himself. Right before he went back up into heaven, right before his time on earth was done, Jesus said to his disciples, in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So let's think about this. Before Jesus came, point A, John says about him, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. After Jesus' work is done, point B, Jesus says about himself, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What connects point A to point B is the path that Jesus walked. His perfect track record against all of the devil's temptations. His perfect care and compassion for the poor 
and the marginalized in society. His perfect love and forgiveness for even the worst of sinners. His willing death on the cross. And when he kept that promise, his promise and John's promise, when he poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, it was proof that that path had been successfully walked. Friends, here's what that means for you and me. It means that it's not up to us to get off of the wrong path and then go ahead and walk the right one. Because, you see, God's expectations for us are so high that as soon as we set a single foot on the wrong path, we've already blown it completely. In fact, at that point, we might as well keep going. But because Jesus walked that path for us, all of those footprints that you and I have made on all of those wrong paths, those footprints have been wiped away. Sort of like all the tracks that your kids might have made on the front yard when we got that big snow a few weeks back. Where are they now? They're gone. They're gone completely. They're gone forever. Just like your missteps, just like your misdeeds, just like all of your sins, gone forever, gone completely. John's invitation to repent is not just an invitation to see the wrong path ahead of time. It's an invitation to see the right path, the one that Jesus walked for us. An invitation to simply welcome and embrace the one who walked that path for us. You know, one of the reasons I think a scene like this makes us a little bit uneasy is not so much the man and what he might look like, not so much that he's in an unusual location where maybe we don't expect to see something like that. It's because I think that word repent sort of makes us a little bit squeamish sometimes, doesn't it? And of course, I'm not suggesting that this is the best way to go out and spread the good news about Jesus. I'm certainly not suggesting that anyone go out and do that. But I am suggesting that there's absolutely no reason to be squeamish about that word repent. It is your Savior's gracious invitation to you to examine the path that you're on, to see where you have walked on that wrong path, and His gracious invitation to you to see the one who walked the right path for you. In other words, even when the first experience we have with Jesus, the first impression that we get is not as a cute, cuddly little baby, but when one of His messengers comes to us and pleads with us to repent, That first impression is nothing but a great one. Amen. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.